after the Middle Ages, in the 16th century or the 1500s, we have the Reformation. And this is a very important period in terms of hermeneutics because the Reformers brought a hermeneutical Reformation before they brought a theological and or spiritual Reformation. It was the hermeneutical change or Reformation that resulted in the spiritual and theological Reformation. It was during this period of time where it was a revival of interest in Greek and Hebrew. This period of time where Erasmus published his first edition of the Greek New Testament, 1516. He published a Greek edition. There was also a Johann Recklin who published a Hebrew grammar. He's considered the father of the revival of the study of Hebrew during the Reformation or preceding the Reformation. Luther himself, he abandoned that fourfold interpretation for a single fundamental interpretation. And the idea of sola scriptura, in other words, we only get truth from Scripture or we depend on truth only from Scripture, that's Luther. In other words, not man's ideas, not things we bring to the Scriptures, exegesis from the Scriptures. So he abandoned allegory in large measure. He interpreted literally, he used grammatical, historical, contextual principles, Christ-centered, dependence on the illumination of the Holy Spirit, So we owe a lot of the hermeneutical principles that we looked at to not only Luther, but others in the Reformation. He said the following, When I was a monk, I was an expert in allegories. I allegorized everything. But after lecturing on the Epistle of Romans, I came to have knowledge of Christ. He's referring to his conversion. For therein I saw that Christ is no allegory, and I learned to know what Christ is. Christ is no allegory. And then later on he went on to say, allegories are empty speculations and, as it were, the scum of Holy Scripture. <laughs> yeah, what is your real opinion? <laughs> I think, yeah, I've seen it quoted in different ways, yeah. Yeah. No, I think so. Yeah. Referring to Origen, he says, Origen's allegories are not worth so much dirt. And he may have used a different word there, too. He also said, allegories are awkward, absurd, inventive, obsolete, loose rags. So it's from the Reformation that there's a revival of grammatical, historical, contextual interpretation. John Calvin, he was first an interpreter. He was first an exegete. He's best known as a theologian, but his theology is based on his exegesis, and he used sound hermeneutical principles. He used the grammatical, historical, contextual method. Maybe not as refined as what we have developed today, but basically his approach was sound. Other reformers, Melanchthon was a literalist, Zwingli, Bollinger, Tyndale, you've heard of them. So the Reformation was a reformation of hermeneutical principles, but after much of the Reformation was taking a lot of converts away from Roman Catholicism, there was a counter-Catholic Reformation. And the Catholics dug in and attempted to clarify and to, in some ways, clean up their act. This is where the Council of Trent came about in 1545 to 1563, which is the foundation of pretty much modern-day Catholicism. So there was a Catholic counter-reformation to try to limit the, the losses. 
but they still clung to tradition. Tradition in terms of interpreting. And they clung to the idea that the average believer is not capable of interpreting. He has to rely on the church for the interpretation. The official interpreter is the church, and the church derives its interpretation from the tradition or the writings of the fathers, church fathers. So we have another period after the Reformation. It's a what we would describe as a post-Reformation period, 17th and 18th centuries. And probably a word to describe that period is fragmentation, where people went in different directions. There's always been the literalists, those that followed in the the path of Luther and Calvin in terms of literal approach. During that time, there were reactions to Calvin and the Westminster Confession, which solidified some of Calvin's and went beyond Calvin. The reaction from Arminius, where Arminian theology was developed. But the literalists during this period of time also did a lot of textual work, a lot of linguistic, historical studies, much like what we would do today. Rationalism arose in the church during this period of time where human intellect began to become more prominent in interpretation, tendency away from the supernatural, away from miracles, laying a foundation for liberalism. There's also a pietistic movement which reacted against some theologies, rigid theologies, more mystical, which is an approach, a hermeneutical approach, or at least an aspect. This is when the creeds began to be formulated, development of the different creeds, Westminster Confession, several of the others. That's post-Reformation. And the last period we would describe as modern from about the 19th century to the 21st century, our period of time. And if post-Reformation is characterized by fragmentation, you might even say this period splintering even more, where you have everything. Subjectivism and liberalism developed during the 1800s, which would be the 19th century. A liberal approach to interpreting scripture. Subjectivism is the view that knowledge comes by one's own experience and rational thought. So it's more motivated from within man rather than from outside of man. So it's rationalism and subjectivism that results in liberalism. During that time, historical criticism arose don't mix that up with textual criticism. This is totally different. Historical criticism is a negative approach to Scripture, viewing Scripture simply as another book, based primarily on philosophical assumptions rather than biblical assumptions. So the undermining of inspiration, the undermining of inerrancy, uh, was the result of historical criticism. There were also some good exegetical work done during this period of time. We have some great commentaries that come out of this period that took a literal approach. So you have these two, you have subjectivism, liberalism, rationalism, as opposed to the literal approach, and the product of that is good exegetical work. Back to our little timeline, we've seen the Jewish period, patristic period, Middle Ages. We have a short period that we call the Reformation, this little small period here. We have another small period, 17th and 18th century, post-Reformation. And then that leads us to the 19th century, to the present. Questions? Church history. That's church history in a nutshell and primarily church history from the perspective of hermeneutics. In our look at history of hermeneutics, we touched on different approaches, major approaches to interpretation. 
So let's pull that together and concentrate on the major approaches. And I've got two that I've highlighted there on your outline sheet, and then there's a an abundance of others. But these two are the kind of the antithesis in many ways to the grammatical, historical, contextual method. We would say that they are defective, and any hermeneutic that is defective is defective because it usually denies some fundamental presupposition of of Scripture, of what the Bible teaches. And that's what makes them defective, and I think as a result... I think they are not a an approach that we want to use in our interpretation. And in some ways, the old nature, our flesh, goes in, in these directions more easily than in the literal grammatical, historical, contextual method. So let's take a look at approaches. And obviously we'll begin with the allegorical Gave you the roots of it, where it came from, all the way back in Old Testament times from Greek thinking. They would be attributed the developers of the allegorical method. And we saw historically the allegorical method had an impact on Jewish interpretation, and then later also on interpretation of the church. And it had an impact to such an extent that it was the primary hermeneutical approach for much of the Middle Ages. Bernard Ram defines it in his textbook. The allegorical approach is the approach that behind the obvious and normal, or parentheses literal, meaning is the real meaning of a passage. So this approach looks at the literal approach as the superficial approach, kind of the surface approach, whereas the allegorical meaning is the deeper, the spiritual, the underlying meaning. Well, there's some problems with that. And I think it began, well, meaning, at least in the church, from the idea that Scripture is inspired, as I mentioned when we were talking about history. And because of inspiration, God's thinking is beyond our thinking. God's ways are beyond our ways. Remember the Isaiah passage? Therefore, you would expect that uh, when God, if God is the author and we believe that he is, and if his work is inspired, then we might expect meanings that go beyond what we could conceive of on the surface. And God could have embedded meaning that uh, he wants us to dig for. Well, that's the idea behind the allegorical. I don't think that that's supported biblically, for one thing, and there's a lot of problems that we'll look at. The word does occur, allegoreo, does occur in the New Testament, so it's a biblical word. Those that like etymology break the word down, alas, and in Greek, alas means what? In this case, this may be a good use of etymology. Another. Alas, heteros. Yeah, another of the same kind. So, alas, and the second part there is agoreo, which means to speak, or one of the words for speaking. So, in this case, the... Etymology might be helpful, for this word at least, not always, where the idea is to speak in another way or in another fashion along the same lines of what is spoken or another way of of thinking, another way of speaking, to speak in a way that is other than what is meant could also have that idea, allegory. So, alas, other, agorein, there's a... Infinitive form, to speak, to speak in a way other than what is meant. And that's the essence of it. It's actually not to speak, but to interpret in a way other than the literal way or the literal approach. 
The essence of it, as I gave it to you, is behind the obvious meaning is the real or deeper underlying meaning, the real meaning of a passage. Another writer says the following, allegorization is searching for a hidden or secret meaning underlying but remote from and unrelated in reality to the more obvious meaning. View the literal meaning as the superficial meaning. Now, allegory in and of itself is not bad, it's not evil. Allegory is a legitimate literary form. The problem is, and the question to ask, is a biblical passage intended to be interpreted allegorically? Now, if you have a book or a passage that's intended to be interpreted allegorically, then you should find hints in the passage or the book that tells you that that's the intent of the author. And there are books that are, in fact, intended as allegories. And one of the classic ones is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It's a story that uh, has allegorical intention and therefore meaning embedded in it. But, at the beginning of the book, Bunyan tells you that what he's doing is he is creating an allegory. So, in that sense, allegory is legitimate and, in fact, a literary form that, in fact, could be useful. But, we don't find, unless Galatians 4, probably the only passage in all of Scripture, that even closely gives you the idea that Paul, in Galatians 4, may be using an allegory. And even there, he departs from what, strictly speaking, an allegory attempts to do. And in fact, he even interprets what he's saying. So we're not off like in allegory, where to some measure you can inject meaning that the author never even thought of or never certainly intended. So that's the issue. The issue goes back to what is the intent of the original author. And like I said, the closest that the Bible comes to is probably that Galatians 4 passage in terms of allegory. And if that's the case, then the allegorical approach should uh, not be used to interpret Scripture. And we've already mentioned that in the Middle Ages, where it was prominent, and I gave you the example already of Jerusalem, the literal city, the allegorical, the church, the tropological, the human soul, the eschatological, the heavenly city. So we've already seen that already. Well, we don't need to spend too much time on it. I think you can already see that it has several problems, so let's just skip real quickly to the weaknesses of the allegorical approach. And you can probably think of some yourself. Can you think of some weaknesses of this approach? And in fact, that's the very first one. Very good. Probably the biggest weakness is its subjectivity. In other words, it's open to just virtually any interpretation that your imagination can come up with. And if you study commentaries that come from this approach, you find out that uh, no one agrees as to what the meaning of the text is. They might uh, agree in terms of the, what they would call the surface literal meaning, but when it comes to the allegorical meaning, then they depart and usually don't agree. So, by far, it is way too subjective. And because it's too subjective, then you have no controls over it in terms of who's to decide. What it actually does is it obscures the meaning. And again, if you look at not entire necessarily entire commentaries, but if you look at, say, an interpretation of a passage that takes this approach, you find that the focus and the energy that was spent in coming up with the meaning overshadows the real meaning, so in essence it obscures the meaning of the passage. Rather than illuminating or exposing or exegeting the real meaning, it actually obscures the real meaning. And sends you off on these rabbit trails that are of no use in terms of the overall passage. So the bottom line is that it obscures the meaning of passages.
Thirdly, it diminishes the historical sense. And one of the main principles that we've developed is that historical principle. And history is very, very important in developing and in understanding the author's intent, and it's very important in understanding the overall meaning of a passage. And the allegorical diminishes that historical principle and that historical sense. It actually denies it and comes up with these ideas that have nothing to do with reality, nothing to do with history. Four, it overlooks the principle of progress of revelation because the same ideas that could be injected or eisegeted into a passage in the New Testament could be the same ideas that are injected in any passage in the Old Testament as well. So it overlooks this progress of revelation principle as well. So those are your main failures, your main problems. And the bottom line, it's a form, in fact it's a blatant form of what we have described as eisegesis in contrast to exegesis. Well, is there any idea of, among all of these uh, interpretations, who's correct? That's the problem. There's no, there's no, in fact, we ought to add also, there's no, I kind of put it under the subjective idea, but we could put another one here in that there's no controls. Because there's, there's no, there's no verification. There's no, no way of verification. There's no better expert that could say, well, out of these ten things, I really think Joe had it. Right, right. Nobody does that. Yeah, there's no way of verification. Let's add that one on there. Yeah, yeah, okay. Along with that, it, it also tells whoever these theologians or interpreters were, it says God is hiding what he says he wants to say to us. Right. He's not revealing it, he's hiding it. Exactly. And it goes against the clarity of scripture principle. And it makes this kind of scenario irrelevant, right? Yes. To be able to use the word of God as our <laughs> personally. Like right. This, which yep. is like you were saying, look at those Middle Ages and tradition trumping liberal truth, right? Absolutely. Being the standard, yeah. Very good. Now, besides the Galatians passage, the ones that you need to be careful of in terms of those that have tended to be used as evidence for or have been utilized allegorically and to this day are interpreted allegorically. Can you think of one book that would fall into that category? Can you think of one book? that tends to be interpreted allegorically rather than grammatically, historically. Some portions of Revelation. I'm thinking of a different one, however. I'm thinking of an Old Testament one. Once I... Yeah. I was going to say, once I say it, you'll get it. The Song of Solomon, the tendency is to interpret it allegorically. And... Either the church is injected or some other concept is injected rather than taking the passages in a more literal way. Now, it's poetic and it does utilize a lot of figures of speech. So it's highly metaphorical, but it's not allegorical. In other words, we don't have the license to inject a meaning that uh, the author didn't intend. And Solomon had no concept of the church. So he could not have intended to be conveying any ideas relating to the church. Or even Israel, which I think some could allegorically take the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon deals with sex. And for the same reason that the early church had a problem with some of those issues... Believers even today have a problem with seeing a book that is so explicit in the sexual area. And some of those figures and some of those metaphorical usages in the Song of Solomon are very sexually explicit. And we can take them literally. I think that was the intent. The descriptions obviously are metaphorical, but not 
allegorical. Makes sense. So the Song of Solomon is probably the, the biggest one in the Old Testament. Some passages in Ezekiel have been allegorized. You mentioned the book of Revelation. Uh, the woman in Revelation 12, the four living creatures in chapter 4, or the white horse and other horses, horsemen in the book of Revelation and others as well. Those are the main passages besides the Galatians 4, 21 through 31. Okay, so that's allegorization. Second major area is what we might describe as liberal interpretation or rationalistic. I've been referring back to that on several occasions, and we talked about the origins of it in the 1800s, the roots of it in the so-called Enlightenment. One of the prominent names was Julius Wellhausen, 1844 to 1918. He is in some ways considered kind of the founder of this whole liberal movement. He took the approach, documentary hypotheses, the J-D-E-P approach. Beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, he noticed certain things, and then it extended beyond Genesis 1 and 2 and went through the entire Pentateuch. He came up with uh, the observation, which is a legitimate observation, but he took it to a wrong direction. He noticed that Genesis 1 and chapter 2, the first three verses, only the, the name Elohim is used. That's the... God that is the creator God, the transcendent God, the God that is separate from all things. But then he noticed, beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, now you have Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. And that's a legitimate observation. That's certainly there. But again, he misinterpreted what the author was doing there. He took it that this showed evidence that uh, Genesis wasn't written by a single author. There was an e-author, the Elohim emphasis, that wrote portions, so he worked his way through the book of Genesis and eventually through the whole Pentateuch, and he isolated different passages that came from this e-author. Then he came up with at least four others. It's a J, P, E, and D, where we have these different authors that somebody compiled the book of Genesis and the whole Pentateuch, so it undermined Mosaic authorship. And what it began to do is introduce some other ideas as well. And the whole basis for it was man's reasoning trying to overshadow revelation. In fact, that's a key phrase that describes liberal or rationalistic. It's called rationalistic because reason is prominent. Not that we don't use reason, right? We use reason, but it doesn't overshadow the revelation. In other words, the revelation is prominent. Well, reason overshadowed revelation to the point that it obscured it and put it underneath the thinking and thought of man. And it began with Wellhausen. So, liberal theology... Because of man's inclination, naturalism became a prominent assuming principle. Naturalism. So if you cannot explain the phenomenon of Scripture from a so-called scientific method, and we've already talked about that, our approach is the scientific method. But this is naturalistic science. In other words, science limited by what you can observe, what you can empirically develop. So, liberal theology begins with naturalism as a prominent assumption. So it reinterprets miracles, it reinterprets the supernatural. And as a result of that, it redefines inspiration. Inspiration is not the same as what uh, we describe and what we believe. We believe that the text is inspired, and we should not tamper with the text. Let the text stand on its own, because this is what God intended. 
Whereas the liberal takes liberty to change the text and see mistakes in the text and therefore try to refine the text or make the text more in line with reason. And instead of the the final product being the product of God's inspiration, they define inspiration in the sense that an author is inspired or moved in such a way that now he writes. But he's human, and that writing is not inspired. It's the author that is inspired. Make sense? So the author is inspired or moved to write. This is the human. The human author. Mm -hmm. And as such, from that movement or inspiration, from those human ideas, now he wrote. But because he is human, there could be mistakes. That's their definition of inspiration. That's why they will take liberties with the biblical text. And they will take it the next step they would undermine inerrancy, obviously. It's not an inerrant book. Another thing they do is they redefine the supernatural. It's not that God intervenes and acts in history, but that certain things have happened that are very unusual, non-typical. And we have a lot of record of non-typical things in Scripture. So it attempts to redefine the supernatural where God is directly involved and God is sovereignly working through history. Another assumption is evolution. And you can see evolution is a byproduct of naturalism, evolution as applied to religion. So they would see the development of religion from polytheism to a monotheism, to an idea of a messiah, they would see and they would impose this evolutionary development on biblical history. And some of these evolutionary ideas were introduced in terms of coming up with that documentary hypotheses that I described earlier, the J-D-E-P approach which, by the way, today is totally discredited. Totally discredited. But you'll still see it in some of the writings, some of the even more recent writings and teachings. So, evolution of religion. And bottom line is a humanistic influence or humanistic approach. That's liberalism. Today... Modern-day liberalism has entirely abandoned Scripture. It began with the undermining of the book of Genesis in terms of authorship. It progressed to the undermining of the Pentateuch, and then it progressed to the undermining of all of the Old Testament and a reinterpreting the Old Testament from an evolutionary perspective to today a total abandonment of all of Scripture, which is normal. If it's just another book, it's outdated, and if it's full of mistakes, then why depend on it, since we're so enlightened and we're so modern and we're so scientific, right? So why hold to the Bible? Liberal churches today have abandoned Scripture altogether, other than maybe an occasional little poetic piece or something that is happens to coincide with the thinking of the day. But it's primarily, you'll hear a message that is more sociological, more philosophical, more humanistic. Liberalism began in the 1800s, infected the seminaries. There were some good seminaries, like Princeton Seminary was a solid, conservative, Bible-believing, inspiration, inerrancy, teaching, seminary, once liberalism got a hold of it, today it's just totally liberal. And from the seminaries, it affected the churches and entire denominations. Most of Presbyterian church, most of the Methodist church is liberal, and a lot of others as well. Just a little cartoon here. The Church of the Busy Shepherd, the Secular Church, Social Involvement, Political Engagement, Cultural Activities, No Religion. And we would say no Bible. So that's liberalism. And to some extent, even 
good, solid evangelical churches have been affected by liberalism. There's other systems. At somewhat of a reaction to liberalism is what's described as neo-orthodoxy. This whole area, uh, I don't want to spend too much time because there's not much influence of neo-orthodoxy. It just saw that liberalism was going too far, and it was a, an attempt to make some sense out of it. Originator Karl Barth, 1886 to 1968, he's credited with starting a neo-orthodox movement. When we say neo-orthodox, it's still very liberal and has many of the liberal presuppositions, but tries to moderate in some ways. So it's between liberal and orthodoxy, and the big thing with uh, Bart was revelation is only when God speaks, but it's not that God speaks through his word or in his word, but God can speak somewhat subjectively to the individual, and the word is just a witness to that speaking of God. So the Bible is a witness to revelation. Denies inspiration and denies inerrancy. So it's still liberal. And today it's a non-factor. You won't run into too many neo-Orthodox theologians today. Another movement around the same time or shortly after, the new hermeneutic. The new hermeneutic, uh, Boltmann is the originator of it, 1844, same time frame, and died in 1976. They like science, presupposition, but this is naturalistic science again, so science from a naturalistic perspective is the priority in the interpreting of the new hermeneutic. They put a heavy emphasis on historical setting to the extent that they neglect exegesis, so it's more important. Another major emphasis, uh, Boltmann saw much of Scripture as mythological, so he tries to identify myth in Scripture. Particularly the first century church, he would say, expressed its faith in mythological terms. So what the new hermeneutic attempts to do is to demythologize, or it uses a demythological principle. Like the allegorist, these events or these incidents in Scripture are mythological, so they're embellished, they're not real, miracles are not real. But what is the essence of what is being taught here? What is the underlying theology? What is the underlying truth? That's the demythological principle. Pull the truth out from the myth. New hermeneutic. And as you can see, it's not much different than liberal. It's just a different brand of liberalism. It's the new hermeneutic. Thirdly, this is real common. There's what we might describe as a devotional hermeneutic. It's not entirely bad, but it has some weaknesses. Probably the main weakness is it tends to be subjective as well. And what a devotional hermeneutic emphasizes is the applicational aspect. So we accept this devotional approach as only a part of the interpretive process. But those that are more committed to a devotional interpretation neglect the historical, grammatical approach, and emphasize more just the applicational approach. In other words, they simply look for how does the passage apply. But as I was giving you application, I was telling you the danger there is if you miss the proper interpretation, then your, your devotional or your applicational phase can be distorted, if not misguided. So it, like the allegorical, can be subjective, no controls. And sometimes some devotional writers have a tendency toward allegorizing, which we describe as really a distortion of the word. So it should not be a substitute for good exegesis, 
you should have your exegesis first, and then you can properly apply. Some kind of bypass what we have done in this course. There's what has been described as dogmatic, or another word is traditional interpretation. That's that Roman Catholic interpretation dependent on authorities, church authorities. And rather than deriving truth from Scripture itself, the tendency is deriving truth from the result of the studies of others. So if their ideas are a little bit off or imbalanced, then the truths that you are basing on their writings can have defects as well. And this is a big area in Roman Catholic interpretation. There's also a distinct hermeneutic of the cults. They have a hermeneutic as well. Not just Mormonism, as we have in the photograph there, but the Jehovah's Witnesses and virtually all the, quote, Christian-related cults. The main principle there is they develop the theology of the founder or they understand the theology of the founder, and then from that, they superimpose that on the scriptures. This is what the founder did initially, in that these so-called revelations he got from God, now he superimposes these ideas on scripture. So what the cults do is they take the writings of the founders, and that theology is a superimposition on scripture. So when the founder is off, and generally they're way off, like all of them deny the Trinity, for example, now, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll go through the scriptures and reinterpret all those passages that are Trinitarian to demonstrate from their perspective that the Trinity does not exist. And there's a variety of other approaches, not so important. In South America, there's what's called liberation theology, which is prominent and is predominantly Roman Catholic as well. But the tendency there is to interpret Scripture primarily from a political and or social or sometimes economic perspective and reinterpret true doctrine from that perspective. Primarily South America, liberation theology. Some places in Africa, liberation theology. Feminist theology, I touched on that, a distinct approach. And obviously the guiding principle there is kind of the equality of women, reinterpreting passages from that perspective. Gives you a feel for different approaches. There's others. These are the main ones. Any questions on that? Comments? And part the devotion part. Yes. You're talking about the personal personal. No, I'm talking about it from the perspective of an approach. In other words, an, an overemphasis on trying to just look for applicational aspects of Scripture to the neglect of the the other things that we've talked about in this course, the grammatical, the linguistic, all the other principles. And like I said at the beginning, it's not totally bad, it, it's just deficient, is what I would say. Well, because I've taken some women's Bible studies, and that's what's, all, that's what's troubled me in a couple of them, is that, the, and which is why I have to take this hermeneutics class, because it, it seemed like that wasn't exactly what the scripture really was saying, but yet they were embroidering around it and making it like fit in whatever the topic of this overall right. study yeah. was. Yeah. yeah, some of those that are guilty of it are those that write devotional commentaries, and probably what you're using in that the women's group is probably a devotional commentary. The average Christian and the average church leader is well-meaning. I mean, it's not like people are trying to, you know, there, there's such a thing as apostates that 
know better and are deliberately deceiving people. But most people are well-meaning. It's just that most of them have not been exposed to good hermeneutics. And like I said, the devotional approach has some good aspects to it. It's just not balanced. It's not complete. It's deficient. And what we've tried to do in this course is to give you a balanced, consistent hermeneutic that is useful in every passage that you come to. That's the history of hermeneutics. That's a a short little glimpse of some of the other approaches. We didn't spend too much time on it. But let's spend basically the rest of the course looking at this whole area that we would describe as special hermeneutics. So we've looked at general principles and everything related to the general principles, including history and different approaches. Now let's take a hard look at this area of special hermeneutics. I've described it as different genres of Scripture. And when we come to Scripture, we're impressed with the variety of types of literature that the biblical authors utilized. So let's focus in on those genres, those literary form that are unique and different and will in some cases contrast them with others. But since they're part of Scripture, we want to understand them because they will have an influence in our understanding of the biblical text or the principles related will have an influence on them. Now I mentioned from the beginning, these general principles are applicable to any particular passage from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22, verse what 21. So those principles are applicable to every passage. Now we're going to specialize, if you will, and look at particular genres. So these are in addition to the general principles. And we're going to focus on what are the characteristics of this type of literature. And from those characteristics, what are the things that we need to take into account in interpreting those particular passages that are in that particular genre. So these are in additional to the general principles. And that's why when we have the general principles and we have the special hermeneutical principles, now with all of these principles, now we can do good exegesis. Let me give you a list of what we will look at to give you a feel for what we're going to do. And there's some others besides these that we'll have time to look at. But we will look at narrative material. Narrative material in some ways is foundational to all the others. That's why I have it first. Plus it is very extensive and as we describe it, you'll see another reason why I start with narrative. And secondly, there is poetic which is very, very different from narrative. We'll look at its characteristics and why it's different. Thirdly, a subset of poetic is wisdom literature. So wisdom literature is classified as poetic, but it also has its unique characteristics as opposed to other poetic So it has some additional characteristics besides, strictly speaking, poetic. So we'll look at it. And when we're talking about poetry and when we're talking about wisdom literature, we're talking about Hebrew poetry, and we'll be talking about Hebrew wisdom literature. We're going to limit to Hebrew poetry, Hebrew wisdom literature, because that is what we have in Scripture. In Scripture, we don't have English poetry. We have Hebrew poetry, which in itself is different from English poetry. And I'll give you some of those differences. Another area is prophetic material, which is unique to Scripture. Prophecy. And it has its own unique characteristics. A subset of prophecy is a whole area called typology. It's a form of prophecy. 
In fact, prophecy comes in a variety of forms. There's other forms besides just plain old prophetic material. I'll outline some of those when we talk about prophecy. One that is very important and very difficult, and we'll give special attention to this special prophetic material called typology, biblical types. Number six, this comes to the New Testament, we have epistles or epistolary literature. That's a unique literary form. Now, because we're raised in the church and we hear more sermons and messages out of the epistles, we're probably most familiar with epistolary literature. So, in some ways, it might be the easiest to describe but there's some things that you probably have not heard that will help you in understanding what's going on with epistolary literature. Seventh, parables. There's parables in the Old Testament, but most of the parables are in the New Testament. And all of the New Testament parables are the parables of Jesus. That's a unique literary form with its own unique characteristics. So we'll look at parabolic literature. Eighth, not so much a literary form, but this is a whole area of special hermeneutics with some issues of hermeneutics that we need to consider. And number eight, that's the New Testament use of the Old Testament. And there's some unique things that you need to take into account in trying to understand what are the New Testament writers doing when they are quoting the Old Testament. And there's a lot of little phrases in the New Testament. For example, like in Matthew, he he basically says, thus says Isaiah, or as Isaiah says, or, or some other prophet, or Jeremiah. And he seems to say something that you go back to Isaiah, hmm, that doesn't sound like... What's going on there? So we'll deal with some of those issues. And there's some things you need to take into account in understanding how the New Testament writers are using the Old Testament. And most of the time, when they're so-called quoting, they're quoting not in the sense that we think. When we think quotation, we think beginning of quotation, exact wording, end of quotation. That was not necessarily the concept in the New Testament. Okay? So we'll look at that. And number nine, this is a literary form, not so common, mainly in the Old Testament, and mainly in the Pentateuch is legal material. Legal material. So those are the areas. And if we have time, I could add a tenth one there, other minor literary form that we can look at as well.